If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter 1. We're going to be looking at 2 Peter 1. As we have been for a while now, we're in a series uh, called Gospel Transformation where we're really just exploring how do we change, how does a person change? How does the gospel transform a person's life? And there's this passage of Scripture, uh, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 8, that we've been in for the last while, and we're in it for another few weeks, um, and we've just been unpacking this. So we're going to continue on in that. Um, I did this at the first service, and it went awesome. Uh, So I'm going to try it again. How's that? I need a volunteer who's willing to read this Scripture passage right here to everybody in the room. You get to use a microphone. I wasn't kidding. Like, I could use a volunteer right now. First person wins. All right, awesome. And just so you all know, I might do that every week for the rest of our lives. So come prepared. This is Bill. Hi, Bill. Good morning. Bill, how long have you been at Midtown? I'm just going to ask you some questions while you're here. Uh, I've been at Midtown longer than I can remember. Do you have a very short memory? Do. Or okay? No, for five, seven years. Or so. Five to seven years. So, if you have any questions about the history of Midtown, the uh, seedy underbelly of Midtown, this is an expert right here. Thank you. You're welcome. Go ahead and read the. I'm done. Read the passage. <laughs> okay. Everyone, hear me too loud. Perfect. Thanks, Chad. His divine power has granted to us all things to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire for this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control Self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Bill Englert, everybody. Um, Yeah. So this is the passage we've been working our way through, and we've been really kind of zeroing in on verses 5 through 7 there, where, where Peter is saying, for this reason, and this reason being that, that he says, everything that you need for life and godliness, the Lord has given to you already. And he's given it to you in, in and through his Son, and he's done it in order that you may participate with the Lord in this life that you may participate with the things that he's given you, his great and precious promises, that you may be a partaker with the divine, as he says, or a participant with God in this life, this side of glory. It's an amazing thing. And so we've been digging into, okay, how does that happen? How do we participate with the Lord? And that's what he's getting at in verses 5, 6, and 7. He's saying, make every effort to supplement to your faith virtue or goodness. And we talked about that one week. And then add to your goodness or virtue knowledge. We talked about that. Add to your knowledge, self-control. Add to your self-control, steadfastness. That was last week. And today we come to add to your steadfastness, godliness. And out of the gate, I have to tell you that I really wrestled with this one. Um, I wrestled with it because when we talk about add to your 
you know, faith, your expression of walking with God, however that looks for you, godliness, a lot of us have a lot of tapes that we play in our minds of what that, what that means. Um, you know, when, 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 when you think of, okay, this is where the Bible is saying, be godly. Uh, we go places in our heads. We, we think about rules, some of us. We think about legalism. We think about people that we know, uh, perhaps, that, that hurt us with their uh, legalistic ways. We, we, think of, we think of all kinds of things, don't we? Of just what is it, this, and this can be a, a kind of a, a, a hard thing to wrestle with, this call to godliness. It can also be uh, a, 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 an amazing thing, which is how Peter, of course, intends it, that we would understand what real godliness is. And that's really important for us. But the thing is, all of us in this room already have some, whether it's intentionally formed or not, some working definition of what this must mean, what it means to be godly. Um, The problem with this is a lot of our definitions of what it means to be godly are really just definitions of what it means to be self-righteous. That's a problem. So we want to talk about that. We want to talk about what is it exactly that he means by godliness. And where we're going to spend a lot of our time is by really interacting with the question, well, what doesn't he mean? What what godliness isn't is where we're going to spend a lot of our time. We're going to talk about self-glorification and and the the dark abyss into hell that is self-glorification. That's where we're going to go. So you've been warned. Um, But... One of the things that struck me this week as I was thinking about this call to godliness is how one of the things that we might presume is that, well, this is only religious people that would really care about this, this, this idea of this call to godliness. That's something that, that is maybe just for Christians or just for people who believe that there's a religious moral code that they're supposed to aspire to. And, and what I just kept getting stuck on is I don't think that's the case. I think that regardless of your religious expression, even if you're an avowed atheist, you understand intrinsically the pursuit of godliness. Here's what I mean by that. If you are a person who desires to be better as a person next year than you are this year, you understand a little bit of what the pursuit of godliness is. If the way that we're understanding the pursuit of godliness is this is the pursuit of uh, what are some words that the culture might use? That, uh, that's enlightenment, uh, bettering myself, having a more uh, holistic view of my place in this world and all that stuff. That is, in a way, in the family at least, of the idea of the pursuit of godliness, that I am growing as a human being in a direction that is good. The problem is, is that what Scripture tells us is the only way that you can do this in an authentic way is to grow in a relationship with the one who is perfect, the one who is good, is God. Otherwise, all we're doing is we're seeking to glorify ourselves, and there's this downward spiral uh, that this is destined to take us into uh, if, if this is our objective. Now, having said that, I feel like talking about the pursuit of godliness is a little bit like handling plutonium. Uh, And what I mean by that is there's power in this. There's power in self-glorification. There's power in, in, in not just in self-glorification, but there's power in pursuing godliness, even in a right way. There's power in this. In fact, we see this in Scripture. We see that when people see 
godliness at work in the lives of Jesus' followers, people have a very visceral reaction to what's happening. It's very, very powerful. People see them and they don't know how to respond. I want to show you two places in Scripture just so you can get this idea that when we're talking about godliness, one of the things that we can't escape from is we're talking about... um, something that the watching world will see, will notice, and will respond to, which is, a, is problematic for us in this sense. Um, it means that if we're thinking about godliness in terms of the reaction that it gets for us, then we're seeing godliness as a means to something. We're seeing godliness as a means toward praise, uh, to, to getting praise from people. I'm going to confuse you if I say any more. So let me just, let's, Acts 3.12 uh, here is, uh, so what's happened here is Jesus has died on the cross. He's risen from the grave. He appeared to his disciples for 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven. And the disciples now are carrying on the ministry of establishing the church. The Lord is with them. He's working through them in powerful ways. Jesus said, you're going to do things even greater than the miracles and the wonders that I did. And in Acts 3, the disciples uh, came across a man who was lame, uh, and he wanted to be healed, and they spoke a blessing of healing over him, and he was healed. God healed him. Uh, What happened is people freaked out. They didn't know what to do with this display of of godliness that they saw. And just hear their reaction, because I think it's it's just interesting. Acts, Acts 3.12, uh, Peter, when, when Peter saw their reaction to the apostles' miraculous healing of a lame man, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? I bring that scripture because, because here's people that saw the apostles emulating a, 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 a unity, a, a closeness with the divine and what they wanted to do is they wanted to worship the apostles. So there's power in this, okay? This is just a warning. Uh, but it's also something that Christ calls us to. He says, don't, don't run from this idea that your life should be an example that people would look at and see and want to know the Lord because of. In, Acts, or in, in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount in 16, Jesus tells his followers, let your light so shine before men that they would see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus, it's his desire for us that when people look at us, they would have a response of a longing to know God better. Why I'm saying this is like handling plutonium is because we mess this up with exchanging the glory of God for the glory of ourselves. And we want people to look at us and to perceive us as being people who are just kind of all put together. That's the question that we have to really wrestle with in this call to add godliness to our perseverance is when we're doing this, what do we want from it? What do I want people to see? What do I want people, how do I want people to react? This can lead us into some great things. I can want people to see real humility in me. I can want people to see that I, that I love the Lord and that I believe that I'm confident that he loves me. But also this can lead us to some dark places of self-justification, that I, I want people to look at me and to see me as being complete and whole and without need. I want to pretend that I'm, that I'm perfect. So the pursuit of godliness can be very freeing for people, but it can also be a dark prison of despair. Okay? Um, I was thinking about this this week. What is, what is a good image 
of what godliness isn't, but is still a way that we pursue it. And I kept coming back to one experience that I had um, a few years ago. I was pastoring a church in Kansas City, and there was a young man named David in our church uh, that I met after the service, and we were just talking, and I asked, you know, kind of the, what do you do in town here? And he said, and I quote, I am a special agent for the FBI. And I was all ears. I was like, are you kidding? You're, you know, because I thought, are you even allowed to tell me that? You know, is that like a secret or are you really? And, and he was like, yeah, you know. And, he, and, and I said, do you ever like give tours of where you work to clergymen, you know? Uh, and he said, I'd love to give you a tour. I'll, I'll give you a call and uh, sometime and, and we'll set up a tour and I'll, I'll just, I'll show you the FBI headquarters uh, in Kansas City. And I was like, Yes. And that day came. He called me on the phone. He said, can you, can you come this afternoon? And uh, I looked at my very full schedule and I said, absolutely, I'm wide open and uh, made some phone calls. And I was there and it was fantastic. I got to the parking lot. I called the number that he gave me. He told me where I needed to go, went through the metal detector, got frisked. Then they took me down the hallway and, and he said, I thought maybe the kind of the first place we'd start is in the, the gun room. Now, I have to just tell you right now, I'm going to tell you some things that don't have anything to do with this sermon, but they're just awesome. <laughs> so he took me into the gun room, and I held a uh, riot police shield. It weighs about 60 pounds, those big things with the little plexiglass window that you make like a... I held a Tommy gun from the 20s. You know, one of those gangster guns with the round clips on the, you know, on the, on the front of it? I did. It was awesome. It was incredible. And then he took me into this room that was just one room past the gun room. So you enter the gun room, and then you go through this door. And he said, this is the simulation room. And I thought, tell me more. And there was the one wall was a big projector screen, the whole wall, floor to ceiling. And there was a guy in there who was sitting at a computer, and he had this 9-millimeter pistol that didn't have bullets, but it had this cable running out of the bottom of the handle that went into the computer. And they handed me this gun. And they said, we're going to run you through some simulations, and you're going to be in a scenario. What you see in front of you is your vantage point, and uh, depending on how you act, I will manipulate what happens next on this thing. And so he, they, uh, they like, do you, need any, you have any questions? And I'm like, I have a thousand questions. What am I about to do? And he said, well, we're going to run you through the first one that we take everybody through. It's called Bad Guy in Living Room, <laughs> which really kind of centered on a bad guy in his living room, and uh, an arrest warrant and all that. Anyway, it didn't end well. Um, I watched my partner bleed out uh, in that scenario. So that wasn't, that wasn't good. But it took me from the gun room to the uh, surveillance room for the facility there, and it was just this room full of TV monitors and a couple of guys in there. And he said, sit in this chair, I want to show you something. And so I sat in this chair, and he pulls up on this computer screen my car in the parking lot. And he's like, this is what you drove in in, isn't it? And I said, yes. And he said, what are you reading? And he zooms in on the passenger seat of my car to where you can read the title of the book that is on the passenger seat of my car. That gave me the eebie-jeebies. I mean, that was just incredible that he was able to do that. But then, okay, so then he took me to the bank robbery division. This is where we're kind of getting back into the sermon topic here. Um, takes me into this bank robbery division. Let me just say, don't rob a bank. 
because you will not get away with it. You just, there's no way you will get away with robbing a bank because you don't know, but there is a room full of about 30 people with high-tech computers and whiteboards working as a team to figure out that you robbed a bank. You don't stand a chance of robbing a bank and getting away with it. I promise you this. But he introduced me, my friend introduced me to the, to the guy who's in charge of the bank robbery division. And he said, you know, got any questions? And I said, well, my first question is when was the last time you sat across the table from an actual real-life bank robber? And he said, yesterday afternoon. And I thought, oh, this is so cool. And he said, well, let me show you, let me show you another room. And, and uh, they took me then to the um, interrogation room at the FBI headquarters. And it's not a room. It's a sequence of rooms. It's, it's intended to intimidate you. Uh, to, to strip you of any sense of confidence or bravado. You walk into the first room, and it's just this room where they take things away from you. We need your belt, your phone, your keys. We're going to need your wedding ring. You know, things like that. Well, they don't need your wedding ring. You're not going to do anything with your... But they're, what they're doing is they're basically just humbling you, you know, in this process. And then they take you into this next room, and in this room is the polygraph machine. The polygraph is the lie detector. And that's what I, I saw this. I was thinking about it this week. What does godliness look like in our lives a lot of times when we're pursuing self-glory? And I just kept thinking of this polygraph machine. Here's what I mean. Imagine, yeah, so the chair you're sitting in right now, get a sense of it. You're comfortable, right? Imagine that chair that you're in right now is about three inches higher than it is right now. Not so high that it's a bar stool, but not normal either. It's just, it's just a little off. Right? It's a little higher than a chair is supposed to be. And you sit in it, and the back is actually just very straight. It makes you feel like it's pitching you forward a little bit. And the armrests on this chair are not like regular armrests. They're, they're like here. You know? so, so you sit with your arms on these armrests that, that raise your arms you know, to chest level instead of the normal comfortable way that you would sit. And so they put you in this chair where it's just a little bit high and you're leaning forward a little bit and your arms are up higher than you really are normally used to having them. And then they hook these, these little sensors up to your fingertips. And you're facing this wall that's about two feet in front of you. It's kind of this brownish gray just wall. So you got the picture? That's how you're sitting. The sensors, they tell you. Uh, these monitor perspiration, uh, heart rate, and then they also strap this thing around you that kind of monitors. It's like this inflatable tube that monitors your breathing. And uh, so, so heart rate, perspiration, breathing is what they're monitoring in you, all involuntary responses. And you're sitting there in this chair. And then the interrogator is sitting over your shoulder behind you. You can't see him, but you can almost feel him breathing down your neck. And he's got this list of questions in this machine. It's just sort of working. It's magic, you know. And here's what they do. They start off with baseline questions, questions that they know you're going to tell the truth on. What is your name? You tell them your name. What kind of car do you drive? You tell them what kind of car you drive. What is your address? And so what they're doing is they're establishing sort of the baseline of, of, okay, here's what it looks like when he's telling the truth. Then they ask you questions, not did you rob the bank, but they ask you these questions. They say things like, uh, have you told a lie in the last year? 
which is brilliant, isn't it? Because what are they doing? They know you've told a lie in the last year. Everybody's told a lie in the last year, but what they've done is they've put you in this position where you're now thinking, how do I want to answer this question? And you're getting a response. Your heart rate is changing, your perspiration, all because you're thinking, how do I want to answer this question? How do I want to answer this question? If you're telling the truth, you're not wondering about how you want to, tell the question, how you want to answer the question, right? Have you ever stolen anything from a place that you worked or from your parents' change jar, anything? Have you ever stolen anything? If you're the bank robber, you're thinking, I just stole $30,000 from the bank. I don't really want to let on that I did that, but I have stolen other things. You know, and so you're going in this, so they're basically getting you in this place where you're uncomfortable, you're not looking at anybody, but they're just doing work on you, and you know it, and you're freaking out, and you're starting to establish this. See, here's what it looks like when he tells the truth. Here's what it looks like when he's stressed out. Then they go in for the kill, and they start asking, hey, where were you yesterday when this bank was getting robbed? And they just watch you go off the charts, and you're just in trouble. You're just, you're done. But I was thinking about that. What does that have to do with godliness? I think for a lot of us, when we think about godliness, we think about image. We think about how we look. We think about how we come across. And for a lot of us, kind of practically, our expression of godliness is a lot like just trying to beat the polygraph machine. It's, I, just, I just want to appear like I've, I'm unindictable. I want you to see that in me. I want you to see that I'm cool, I'm good, I'm fine. There's nothing you can hold against me. I don't mess up. I don't, I don't, I don't break laws. You know, I'm, I'm okay. The problem is, is that the pressure then to perform is just relentless. It's just wearing you down. Can you imagine being under the scrutiny of a polygraph machine? Some of you may have had this experience, I don't know. But can you imagine that? That's what the pursuit of godliness is for so many people. We're under the lights, we're strapped to truth-detecting machines. We're doing everything that we can to appear unindictable. And what's so hard about this is we are guilty. (laughs) We're ungodly in so many ways. But we don't want people to see that. And so we try to put forth an image of godliness. And I would submit to you today that if your approach to godliness is to try to convince a watching world that you have it all together, that is a path that is going to lead you to lonely ruin. Why? Because you will have exchanged the pursuit of knowing and being like the God who loves you for actually becoming a God. That's what you're after. This is the pursuit of misery And it's the misery of exalting yourself and having to do it on false pretense. The person who's pursuing godliness for their own glory is they're making themselves to appear like they're just fine. So we've kind of beat that into the ground here. But it's important for us to understand because godliness as a means of self-glory leads to sinister places in the heart. And the darkest part of it is this. You might succeed. You might actually arrive at a place in your life where you have effectively persuaded everyone that you don't ever make mistakes. You have it together, that you are responsible, that you are dependable, that everything is in place and in order when inside you're so lonely, you're so depressed, you're so discouraged, you're just falling apart, but you're pulling off the illusion. 
And Paul, in 1 Timothy 3, he talks about this. He gives a description of it. And I want to read this passage of Scripture, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. But I want to give this preface before I read it. This is a passage of Scripture that is easy to read through the lens of there are good guys and bad guys in the Bible, and this is a passage about bad guys in the Bible. And what I want to challenge you with is read it as though Paul is writing this about you. Okay, if you're willing, if you're daring, if you're if you if you're willing to go there, read this through the lens of could it be possible that he's describing my heart right now? Okay, here's what he says to Timothy. Mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money. Boastful. Proud abusive, disobedient to their parents. That's in the New Testament. Ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then he says this, having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with such people. That's quite a list of things that I know full well reside in me. It's amazing. He's talking to Timothy about this phenomenon of people who aspire to appear godly in the eyes of the watching world when in reality they are a million miles away from any semblance of an actual relationship with God. But when the world looks at them, they don't see that. There's this form of godliness. There's this appearance. But the thing is, is is, is God is nowhere near them. He is not the source of the power. The source of their power to appear that way is they are effectively, you are effectively, I am effectively beating the polygraph. And that's it. This is a dark place. Because even if you're succeeding here, how can you be happy? How can this be a peaceful place for your heart? Godliness without the power of God puts this burden on the heart to control. And so we're we're trying to manufacture perfection from within. And we're making ourselves then miserable in the process. C.S. Lewis wrote this amazing, just, ah, I don't know how he did this. He wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters. If you've read that, it's the premise of The Screwtape Letters is it's a collection of letters written by a demon named Screwtape to his younger nephew demon named Wormwood. And what the letters are about is Screwtape is counseling Wormwood in how to corrupt this Christian that Wormwood has been assigned to, uh, to just mess with. And, uh, and so it's this book that C.S. Lewis wrote about kind of... Uh, what would an, an elder, uh, sort of more seasoned demon say to his younger nephew demon in counseling him to destroy the inner life of this person that he's been assigned to? And uh, it really is all about self-glorification. Um, and here's, here's one of the things that, that Screwtape writes to Wormwood. This is from chapter 4. Um, I just think this is amazing. The simplest way... He says, it's to turn their gaze away from him, being Jesus, toward themselves. Keep them watching their own minds 
and trying to produce feelings there by the actions of their own wills. When they meant to ask him for charity, let them instead try to manufacture charitable feelings for themselves and not notice that this is what they're doing. When they meant to pray for courage, let them really be trying to feel brave. When they say they are praying for forgiveness, let them be trying to feel forgiven. Teach them to estimate the value of each prayer by their success in producing the desired feeling and never let them suspect how much success or failure of that kind depends on whether they are well or ill, fresh or tired at the moment. But he continues because he's contending against the gospel. He says, but of course, the enemy, that's Jesus, will not meantime be idle. Whenever there is prayer, there is danger of his own immediate action. He is cynically indifferent to the dignity of his own position and ours as pure spirits. And to human animals on their knees, he pours out self-knowledge in a quite shameless fashion. I love that because he's telling us there's hope in Christ, even in the midst of our miserable pursuit of self-glory. But what's his point? Lewis is trying to describe a living hell, right? He's trying to describe this level of misery. And here's something he says in the introduction that I just think is so insightful. He says, we must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance, where everyone lives the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. Do you know what he just defined? Self-glorification. That's what he just defined. He says, look, this is powerful what he's saying, because he's saying the pursuit of self-glorification, listen, that's not the path to godliness. That's the path to hell. Why? Why is it that strong? Why is he saying it this intently? Why are we contending like this in this dark place? Because if you're on this path of self-glorification, it is not just an unwinnable race. It is an unfinishable race. You can't endure to the end. And the reason you can't endure to the end is because there is no end. It just goes on and on and on and on. And it just beats your heart into this lifeless pulp where all you're doing now, all your faith is, is just trying to beat the polygraph of the watching world. And it's exhausting. Godliness is not self-glorification. That is not a path to pleasing God. It is a path to inner ruin. So what is godliness? Let's step into the light of what Peter is calling us to here. And let's wade into it by remembering some of the things that he had said in this passage that, that we read earlier. The first thing is that he says that everything that you need for life and godliness, God has given to you in Christ. You don't lack anything. You don't lack anything. You don't have to manufacture innocence that isn't there. You don't have to manufacture this perception that you don't need a Savior. That's precisely the point of having a relationship with the Lord is you do desperately need Him. But everything that you need for life and godliness, God has supplied for you. He's given it to you. He's good. He's gracious. He wants you to have that. And then He said all these things that He's given, all these great and precious promises, 
He's called you then to live in these and to participate in this life with the Lord, to participate with the divine, to have this active, ongoing relationship with God. That's what godliness is, is living every waking moment of my life in a Godward direction. All of my failure, all of my success, all of my struggle, all of my questions, all of my emotions. It's very relational, this call to godliness. It's not to try to emulate, you know, Rembrandt, uh, master Renaissance painter, um, just incredible, was, was regarded as and referred to by other painters at the time as the master while he was living, not even after he died and people looked at his stuff and appreciated While he was living, they called him the master. And he had all kinds of people who their whole approach to studying and learning art was learning to emulate Rembrandt. That was the whole point, was I want to paint like Rembrandt. That was, if they could paint like Rembrandt, they would be amazing. They would, they would have arrived at this place of, of being a master themselves. So what they're doing is they're trying to emulate this canvas that has been painted by this person that they don't know, that they don't have a relationship with. We approach godliness like that, where we're saying, all right, how can I look like what God looks like, but not have this relationship with him? Godliness is very relational. It's very face-to-face with the Lord, very engaged with him. One commentator defined godliness like this. He says, godliness is humble reverence for God with a desire to glorify him, to conform to his word, to care for others in need, and to endure hardship and adversity in a godly way. Godliness is living for God in a Godward direction every day of your life. It's, it's, seeing, it, it's something that people see, yes, they see that in you. You see this in people when they're living a godly life. You witness it, you perceive it, you want to know what is it about you. But that person who's living out true godliness will tell you, I'm not living this way, my life is not this way for the purpose of getting you to respond and praise me. I don't need you. See, I don't need you to praise me. It's, not, it's, it's something that people see, but not because you're putting on a show. It's because when they look at you, they see someone who is honestly facing the Lord in every area of their life. What would it look like for us to honestly face the Lord in every area of our life, to pursue him in that way? Here's some, some things it would look like. It, w- it would be this. I, I can be genuinely thankful to God for his provision, thankful to God for his provision in my life because I know that I can't provide for myself. I can come to his word with a hunger to learn and to see things that I've never seen before because I know that I'm not supposed to already know everything. That's honest. I can generously give because I know that the Lord is my provider who cares for all my needs according to his riches and glory. I don't need to hoard anything. I can develop a deep satisfaction in the idea that I should decrease so that he might increase because I believe that his glory is infinitely more wonderful to behold than mine. I can interrogate my own heart without fearing that what I feel disappoints God or is somehow beneath me. The Psalms, this beautiful collection of poetry and scripture of people interacting in very godly ways with the Lord. It's a, it's a collection of poems of godliness. And in those Psalms, you see emotion. And in our minds, a lot of times we think of good emotion and bad emotion, right? We think, okay, happy, 
joyful, I want to sing a song. Those are good emotions. Angry, bothered, complaining, those come from bad emotions. And the psalm checks us in that and says, not necessarily the case. In the psalms, we see godly portrayals of prayer, of praise, of confession of sin. We see what it looks like to complain in a godly way. That happens in the psalms, that I'm complaining because I desire the glory of God. What it looks like to really celebrate in a Godward way to introspect in a Godward way. The Psalms call us to this Godward emotional life to say part of what it means to grow in godliness is to have a godly direction with all of my motivations, all of my doxologies of praise, everything that's coming out of me. I'm understanding that I am in a life where I am praying without ceasing, that God is present in every thought, that he's present with me in every moment, that he is here. It's the opposite of the polygraph experience. What it means to be godly is, yeah, your heart is being interrogated all the time, all the time. But instead of in the stone-cold, awkward chair facing the wall with this person looking to find guilt to indict you, the chair is turned around and you are face-to-face with your Savior in his nail-scarred hands, and he's there, and he's asking you questions about your weakness. He's asking you questions about your struggle. He's asking you questions about your fear. He's asking you questions about your guilt, about the manipulations that you're involved in, the little things that you do, the twisting, the, the things that Paul mentioned there. He's asking you questions about your treachery. That's one of the words that Paul used. I thought it was so strong your rashness. But what the gospel says is that he's asking you these questions and you are saying without fear, yes, yes, guilty on all counts. Absolutely. That's not even the beginning of the depth of my corruption. And the one interrogating your heart not only knows that that's true, But there's no fear in that interrogation. And the reason there's no fear in that interrogation is because you also know the one who can, the one that who can indict you has also placed the full measure of his wrath upon his son in your place. And so you know there's a guarantee that you will never pay for your own sins. And the reason you will never pay for your own sins is because your faith is in the one who has already paid for them. And that would be demanding two payments for your sin, which would be unjust. And you rest then, you rest in the one who interrogates your heart because you know that the reason that he's interrogating your heart is not so that he can condemn you, but is because he was already condemned to die for you and is contending now for your heart. Would you see it? Would you just see it? Would you trust that you can walk into this, that we can explore the deepest, darkest regions of your heart without fear? That's what godliness is. is this, it's the mercy and grace of the interrogator of your heart, Jesus Christ, prying your death grip off of control one finger at a time and sending you into this place where you just have nothing to hold on to anymore except the confidence that the one who is questioning you is also the one who has paid your debt and has rescued you from your own fallenness. And out of that, out of that motivation, I live a life of grateful, Godward 
obedience. This sets us free to grow in obedience without having to pretend that we're already perfect. Godliness is reveling in the freedom of the gospel, of never again trying to pretend you don't need a savior, but instead delighting in the all-sufficiency of the one that you've already been given. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, you know our hearts. You know that we are so prone to approach this call to godliness, um, not out of a desire to uh, respond to your word, but out of a desire to not embarrass ourselves. Uh, Lord, you know that we want so bad to not be embarrassed, uh, to not be found to be lacking in any way. Uh, but Lord, you also know that that one of the ways that we are so inclined to do that is to uh, to try to pretend, uh, to try to put on a show, um, uh, to try to beat the polygraph. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would just break us. I pray that you would bring us to places, Lord, where we would just repent knowing that there's just no way, no way that we should have any reasonable sense um, that we can lie our way into better standing in this world. Um, Father, would you make us to be people who are humble enough to repent even of our own repentance, of the way that we've tried to appear godly in the way that we repent uh, when our hearts have been a million miles from you. Lord, I pray that you would you would just continue to interrogate us with, with your love, with the truth that we don't have to hold on. We don't have to pretend that we're not guilty, but instead we can rest in the way that you have covered our guilt with your blood. These are big thoughts. Uh, and... Uh, they require uh, things of us that we just cannot give, but you provide everything that we need for life and godliness. So Lord, engage our hearts. Pray that you would challenge us with this, that you would also, though, remind us that as we're in this interrogation room, that while we are there, while you are searching our hearts, that we are in the safest place in the universe right there, uh, that we are with you and you have atoned for our sins by your grace. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray and for your glory. Amen.